0: Everyone, this is Flo, and this is Jesse. Welcome to. Is it the last episode of the Great War Supporter Podcast for this year, or the second to last? Either you, of those. You tell me. You're the producer. <laughs> either of <laughs> I those. I just show up. Either of those. It is. So it's, it's almost snowing outside. It's almost Christmas. What better time to sit down and talk about history? I thought you were going to say talk about Hitler. But okay. Yeah. Okay. We are going to talk about Hitler, or more generally, we're going to talk about German politics 1919. That's how we started the year. That was our first Great War 1919 episode, uh, the uh, so-called kissed Rising. Some, some fans have criticized that we used that because it's, it, it, they said it's a propaganda term. I'm not really sure, but that's how it's. I mean, it's, it's always a bit of a thing. It's like, you know, we, we need to work in terms of search engines as well. Like, is, what is the term people are going to look for? And we need to kind of call the video that rather than use the most neutral current ter- historical term. That's a bit of a balancing act. The vagaries of uh, doing history on YouTube.
1: Yeah. But yeah, so we're kind of bookending. The Hitler episode is not the final episode for the year, but it's it's pretty close. So it's kind of a German bookends to 1919.
0: Yeah, and uh, apart from that, what is relevant to that, um, let's call the episode uh, the first footsteps in Adolf Hitler's political career, basically 1919. Um, what is also relevant to that, if you haven't watched it or have forgotten about it, is our episode about the Munich. Soviet uprising, no, the, the Munich Soviet. That's called let's call that. I think we, I
1: think we called it the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Ah, we yeah. talked a bit about the countryside and stuff. Yeah, as that's well. true.
0: That's true. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, uh, even though by the end of World War, by the end, by the armistice on the Western Front, uh, Hitler was in a hospital. Yeah. If I remember correctly, that, which was more around here. Uh, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure which Landsberg uh, you were referring to in the episode. Uh, But generally, uh, he was in hospital uh, temporary blindness from poison gas or from stress, from traumata. Uh, That's like, I think there is some debate about whether he was blinded by the actual gas or if that was a side effect from uh, basically a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. But he was in that hospital uh, for another week, I think, after the armistice, and then he basically came out and everything had changed around him.
1: Right, and that's true. And the around him part is, to me, one of the most important parts of this episode. Um, and trying to put the episode together, this is something that uh, we also talked with with uh, Markus Linke, who helped us with the research. It's not just about Hitler, as an individual. He didn't wake up and regain his sight in the hospital and start writing Mein Kampf and organizing rallies for Nuremberg. Though that is, of course, something that he would basically claim afterwards. Oh, he, he would have loved for people to think that and try to shape it uh, that way uh, in later years. But it's about the context, right? He didn't come from nowhere and he didn't think up everything that he did and the Nazi party later did on his own and all at one time. And I think if we're trying to understand Hitler um, and all the debates around him, including the infamous debate about socialism versus fascism and so on, it's important to kind of try to parse out the different building blocks that go into creating the Hitler that is such a dominant individual historical figure. I mean, he was shaped quite a lot by his early years in Vienna, which is not something that we. Could fit really into this episode for 1919, but I thought it's really interesting. There's a great book called Hitler's Wien, Hitler's Vienna,
0: um, and it talks because he was Austrian. Yes, he was Austrian, of course. Yes, it's something that sometimes gets swept under the rock, <laughs> but he was Austrian.
1: Yes, he was Austrian, and he spent several years in Vienna. Uh, you know, he got rejected from the art school in in Vienna, and so on. But he spent several years in Vienna, and he so goes the argument of this, uh, of this book, was influenced by Viennese politics at the time. So there were a couple of important trends in Viennese politics, one of them being uh, anti-Semitism as a political tool. The longtime mayor of Vienna, uh, Richard Weger, used it quite a lot. Um, he even has this very famous quote, sort of encapsulating how he used it as a political tool. He said, Wer I? which basically means, I decide who's a Jew. And then in brackets, you know, for political purposes, yeah. right? So uh, this was an environment that uh, Hitler absorbed in the, in the coffee houses of
0: Vienna. He spent a lot of time there. And there was another grouping. Mm-hmm. We, we went to uh, your cafe recently when, when I visited Vienna. Uh, it's, let's just say it's a cafe called uh, Zur Monarchie. Café Monarchie. Café yeah. Monarchie and it was plastered with Franz Josef paintings. It's wall to wall Franz Josef. Uh, yeah,
1: so if, you're, if that's your thing when you're in Vienna, look it up and if you can't get enough whiskers and old school uniforms, that's, that's the place to go. Um, but yeah, what I wanted to add about the, the Viennese uh, aspect of Hitler's kind of genesis as a prequel to this episode, let's say. Um, there was a radical nationalist group called uh, the Schönerianer, Georg Schönerer was this politician and they had so many elements that you later see as being part of the foundation of the Nazi party. They had all these, uh, all this emphasis about the Germanic uh, rituals and pagan sort of ideas about the power so, of the f- gods and all so this uh, kind of stuff. F- yeah, you could you could describe it like that. There's no real English word that encapsulates uh, what that means, but sort of yeah. like uh, folksy, old school tribal type uh, nationalistic ideas from pre-medieval states. So the Germanic tribe type of culture being woven into a political tool of identity for Pan-German nationalism.
0: Yeah. So okay. So and basically building out a, commu- a continuity from uh, these. Medieval states, even though they were national pre-medieval, st- pre-medieval states, yeah. even though they weren't national states or ethnic national national states.
1: Uh, it doesn't even have to be states; it can just be the the political grouping of these tribes. Okay, right. Um, yeah. Following whichever leader, whichever legendary figure, and so on, using imagery, you know, winged gods and these types of things. So, um, I, I thought that was a really uh, Useful thing for me to learn about to try to understand Hitler as more than one idiosyncratic individual, right? As a as a product of different environments that he was in, and then of course in the episode for 1919, you know, there's a similar story. He's shaped by his uh, need to stay in the army and draw a salary. He's shaped by being recruited to uh, be in the sort of intelligence service. Um, Intelligence slash propaganda service. Right. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. That's true. Uh, well, let's be clear. Information service, uh, yep. for lack of a better word, and um, then once he potentially related to that job, gets in contact with this with this uh, Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, this German Workers' Party, the forerunner to the Nazi Party,
0: which was a bunch of
1: guys in the back room of a pub. Right. There's like 30 guys who are putting out all sorts of ideas in the chaos of uh, post-war Germany. There were all sorts of different groups of 30 guys hanging out in pubs. That called themselves a party. Exactly. So uh, it was party maybe with like a small p, I don't know, like a stammtisch party, uh, so to speak. But there again, you have these figures like uh, Feder or Drexler or Hess, or even uh, Ernst Röhm, who is often kind of a footnote. Ah yeah, well, you know, he was this SA guy before Germany started the war and then he got killed and that's pretty much it. But he was a big deal in 1919 for the uh, evolution of the Nazi party because he was part of that military connection. Yeah. And And that was a key thing to the, not exclusively to the popular growth of the party, but... For that connection with that uh, officer class, military, conservative kind of part of German society, that became extremely important later on when
0: Hitler becomes a big player and makes power deals with them and so on. That is, of course, you know, different from all kinds of for all kinds of aspects. They were not pleased with uh, the fall of the monarchy and the establishment of the republic in most cases. The officer, the officer class, the yeah, officer class uh, of the German army. They were very interested in perpetrating the step in the back myth, of course. and It was quite convenient for them, because then they weren't at fault for losing the war. Yeah, you know, uh, let's ignore the fact that Ludendorff has a nervous breakdown uh, when he realized the war was lost. Well, we can also ignore
1: the fact that the entire 1918 offensives were operationally successful, but strategically
0: yeah. Let's say questionable. For for another podcast episode. <laughs> um, so so that you know that was a convenient part for them. That's like a small detail in Hitler being in that propaganda uh Nachrichtenabteilung is they had economic power still. Like they they were able to provide steady income in a time of you know uh, breakups and uh you know discontinued uh, discontinued um jobs or employment uh, opportunities and also like, you know, where the economy is not going as smoothly as it could. Uh, and of course, you know, they came from... That's an
1: understatement, but yeah. yeah.
0: They, they came from, you know, from, from nobility uh, uh, and so on, so, you know, they were in a different economic position and could have the luxury to say, okay, we're going to form... A new ideology now? Are we going to have like uh, you know ideological debates and care about this and get politically active? Which is something that not everybody was able to do at the they time. They weren't as worried as
1: about eating as your average uh, German yeah. out, who was out of work was. Yeah, and,
0: and you know into a more uh, on a on a bigger scale, you know they had if you had the military from the past four and a half years of total war, you had the military industrial complex as well. Uh, we already see the establishment of the Anti-Bolshevik League, uh, which I forgot the name, but which was basically started by uh, by a right-wing proto-fascist officer who had experience in Ukraine uh, in 1918 and, and what he saw there, who you know also carried a lot of the anti-Semitism from there and the experience uh, with equating Bolshevism and anti-Semitism, uh, which was something that was prominent in the white movement. He carried that to Berlin and then... Through this military-industrial connection, because in total war the military and the industrial output are very much interlinked, was able to secure funding from, from I think uh, you know some pretty big German companies like Siemens and uh, Deutsche Bank and everything to start like uh, anti-Semitic propaganda, um, and that basically means okay they are already you know the wheels are already turning when Hitler is f- coming from that hospital yeah. uh, to say okay we need to have like a you know, we want to, A, we, we need to defend ourselves against Bolshevism, which we equate with, uh, with Judaism, and we need to, you know, need to have the economic power and win the hearts and minds of people who, you know, to convince them that we need to go back to the monarchy and that, we are, that the erectionary answer is the right one for the new chaotic times. Mind you, two, two quick
1: points to, to add to that. There, of course, was just so no listeners are unclear about it. In addition to certain elements of experience being brought back from uh, the Freikorps in the Baltics or uh, German experiences in Ukraine about Jews and about Bolshevism, and so on. Of course, there's a homegrown. Uh, German anti-Semitism that's there as well, right? It wasn't just imported.
0: No, no, of course not. Of course you
1: didn't say that, but I just want to make sure that we're clear. There was the Judenzählung in 1916 and a whole history of...
0: Anti-Semitism and the Protestant and the Catholic Right, right. There's a whole tradition there. So, yeah, yeah. just
1: just to clear that up. As far as the reactionary side of it goes, uh, the interesting thing is how this alliance started to grow between people who are maybe... Reactionary in the sense that they would have preferred for the monarchy and that order to stay, and people like Hitler and the founders of the DAP, who are not really monarchist, they are, uh, for lack of a better word, secular nationalists uh, and anti Semites. And that these two
0: groups end up finding some serious common cause in, in uh, yeah. Weimar times. As, as much as they're um, nationalists, they're also anti internationalists. Yeah. Like that's also a very important uh, aspect for their ideology, that they also reject the idea of internationalism as it is proposed by the Bolsheviks. Yeah, also because they associate that with, with you know, Jewish cosmopolitanism and so yeah, on, yeah. right? So if
1: if a, a Jew is a socialist, then that fits the the Feindbild, I was gonna say, the sort of idea of the enemy. But if it's a Jew who is not socialist at all, but involved in some other political activity, well then, that's also gonna fit the, the bill because they might have family in another country, they might have business contacts in another country, so all roads kind of lead to Rome, yeah. so to speak.
0: Or to Munich, <laughs> in, in, this, case, in, 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 in case. this case in Munich,
1: yeah. And that's another part of that context, right? I, I don't think we can underestimate the influence of go, uh, for, on Hitler of being present in Munich during this outbreak of violence during the Bavarian Socialist uh, Republic, the leaders of which were uh, mostly Jewish, and um, even the fact that he was temporarily still in the army when it was sort of rebranded, let's say, for lack of a better word, as the Bavarian Red Army and so on, and was around uh, when this failed revolution took place with all the violence and the reprisals and the Freikorps marching in and so on. This is all important. To understand, it's it's critical to seeing Hitler as more than one madman, uh, because that is definitely not enough to to understand um, him and the and the whole twenty year period.
0: Yeah, it's also important to understand that you know everything. Uh, I think that something that I mentioned in the beginning is that you know he would like you to think that. You know, he was struck by genius and came up with all of this. But, you know, this all happened in context and it was in a very chaotic time and lots of people were involved, shaping his political ideas um, and, you know, politics in general at the time. Uh, what I was getting at is the uh, we need to be careful when examining someone as notorious and uh, infamous as Hitler to not... Uh, be a uh, narrativist, I think, is the term that you use in in his, for this kind of thing. That you you know by knowing the outcome and where Hitler would ultimately land in German politics, uh, also very neutral way of describing it. <laughs> um, we, we, we can't you know we can't say that everything that happened in nineteen nineteen was inevitable, and you know that he that his determination uh, was the thing that led to that way. That you know that was a very chaotic, complex situation, lots of people involved. We hope that with that episode, we made that clear. Um, there will be another episode on German politics very soon, because there is a coup d'etat, coup d'etat coming, an attempted coup d'etat where Hitler is involved and a certain Erich Ludendorff, which we also just mentioned, is going to be involved. Uh, we're working on that. And one final thought I, w- I wanted to give is we have a Patreon question that is also on our list from uh, Joseph uh, Donu is Donohue is how I would pronounce that, D O N O H U E. D O probably
1: D-O-N-O-H-U-E. I, Donohue maybe no.
0: Is it? Let me see. Is it as simple as Donohue? Is that I, Irish?
1: I, I would go for Donohue is the Irish
0: okay. pronunciation. Okay, one yeah. of the two, but it's it's a question from Joseph. Um, he he asked us um, if we can briefly explain fascism because that's a term that gets bandied about as he called it uh, quite a lot, even also in modern politics, of course. And I think we're, you know, with this episode, I think we're kind of um, inching our way to this, you know, it's a simple question with a very complex and long answer. We're inching ourselves towards uh, answering that. Um, this is maybe one one way to look at the emergence of fascism and we could call it proto-fascism in Germany at the time it's important to know that at the same time there were elections in Italy and uh, oh. Benito Mussolini had already founded the combi di, co, what was it called oh my my italian fails
1: me here but it's like the the fighters for fasc- the combat Combatants uh, yeah. for fascism, or something yeah. along those and lines. And
0: even though that they would lose in that election, you know that that scene was set, and that is also where the term fascism comes from. And as far as I know, there is also already emerging fascist movements in Austria, German Austria, the new founder German Austria at the time, and in Czechoslovakia as well. I think both the uh, well, the National Socialist parties of Czechoslovakia and of German Austria were founded before the NSDAP. That's an interesting tidbit as well. So the wheels are turning on that front, too, and I think in 1920 we will, we will see more of that and then maybe revisit that question in another podcast where we can say, okay, if we look at these four different movements, we can say, okay, at 1920 fascism meant that because then a few years later it meant something different, you, you know, even, and that is even different from what it means today. That's like also kind of a bit of a problem of defining these things or even explaining them briefly. It is a minefield.
1: It is a minefield, but we'll do our best to help you guys out there um, follow its origins. And, and I think that's part of uh, trying to get to grips with the terms is looking at it historically, rather than necessarily all the different ways it gets used today.
0: Yes. Um, We won't have an expert interview this week, sadly, but speaking of Patreon, we have another Patreon question that you did some research for. This one is coming from Jack Sharp, and it's, how did the Armenian genocide impact the peace negotiations between the Allies and the Ottoman Empire? Were the Allies more harsh on the Ottomans due to it, or did the Allies not really care about the Armenians and what happened to them?
1: All right, yes, I did some research on this. not only for this question but as a part of the Caucasus episode that we did I had to read a bit about Armenia more uh, in depth and then of course uh, for an upcoming episode about Asia Minor
0: let's say it that way since the Turkish Republic didn't yet exist and also for a potential and we also uh, I think this also relates a bit to um, pa- the Palestine Syria region even yes. as well right Yes
1: um to make a very long story short, um, first things first, there were no real negotiations with the Ottomans, like with Bulgaria, Germany, and um, the Austrians and the Hungarians. So, so even less of negotiations that there were with the <laughs> Well, there was one exception, because uh, the Grand Vizier actually did go to Paris and sort of made his case at some point, now they didn't listen to him. But, uh, that sounds more like the negotiations yeah, in Paris. So that was actually more than what, say, the Germans got or the Bulgarians got, right? He actually got to go there in June uh, 1919 and say, hey, you know, we don't want the Ottoman state to be broken up, and, and, and. Um, so negotiations is, is not quite what was going on there. But as far as trying to figure out a peace settlement, Yes, the Armenian Genocide played an important role in several different ways. The Allies knew about the Genocide, there were like American missionaries and so on who had been reporting on it while it was happening, uh, when the U.S. was still neutral. The U.S. never actually declared war in the Ottoman Empire, so there was more communication possible that way. Also through the diaspora, Armenian diaspora in different countries, especially in the U.S., um, and of course, through the Germans uh, eventually, because the Germans also knew it was happening. Um, so this definitely helped color the negative view that many of the Allied leaders had of the Turks. Now they didn't get this negative view just from the genocide, but it made it a lot stronger. There was a traditional negative view based on 19th century uh, conflicts between the Ottoman state and different Christian minorities in the country, especially the Bulgarians, and this was like a big cause célèbre in uh, the Western world about how the Turks had oppressed so many so many Christians in the Balkans especially, uh, but also in other parts of the Middle East. So uh, yes, the genocide contributed to this general um, opinion, which then contributed also to how seriously the Allies took um, Turkish aspirations for maintaining their state. Um, The U.S. This was like a popular topic in the U.S. Would help Armenia, you know. There's been all these massacres. They're starving. There was a big food aid program, uh, sending food to Armenia. There were petitions uh, from citizens and from the Armenian diaspora to the U.S. government. You know, take over a mandate. This was one of the biggest topics. Was about mandates. So basically. uh, a mandate is one of the Western powers agrees to kind of oversee some other part of the world. And we'll, we'll talk about them more when it comes to uh, that the, sounds like the col- Middle
0: East. That sounds like colonialism with extra steps.
1: It is kind
0: of colonialism
1: light, but in the Armenian case, and to a very lesser extent the Turkish case, which I'll mention in a, in a future episode, but in the Armenian case, they wanted the mandate. Because for them, it was protection against the Turks and the Russians, the two big powerful neighbors on either side who eventually do defeat them and take them over and they're
0: absorbed into who, bo- who both a vetted interest in the region because yeah, of yeah, sure, o- strategic
1: sure. uh, influences oil over the course of history yeah. this is a critical area for both Russia and, and Turkey so there's all this talk about an American mandate uh, the other allied leaders want the US to take over this mandate and Wilson proposes an Armenian state that is quite large that incorporates a lot of what is today northeastern uh, Turkey, which Armenians would consider western Armenia. That's like the region around Erzurum. Yeah, and Kars and so on. Mm. Um, great there. Great war viewers from 2015 might remember. For exa- There was a lot of fighting there in, in 1916 as well. So uh, this proposed Armenia, which was talked about and talked about, and uh, eventually, they attempted to create it at the Treaty of Sèvres in summer 1920, but I won't get too far into that. As you may know, it didn't work out. But this mandate was talked about a lot, and the other Allied leaders wanted the US to take over that mandate. Uh, Wilson was sort of, in principle, fine with the idea, but he knew that the US Senate and population were just not into it, so to speak. And the more time went by, without a peace treaty with the Ottomans, the more the Allies all disengaged, but uh, in particular the U.S. From generally European affairs? From international affairs, yeah. Yeah. Um, The U.S. is sort of going towards, you know, this uh, isolationism, right? Um, Now, there were other involvements, like the other powers, it's not like they didn't care as much about the Armenians as uh, the U.S. There was a bit less domestic pressure, but like the French and Armenians fought together in Cilicia, uh, for example. Um, there were, like the Armenian troops were kind of working in tandem with the French troops uh, in those regions. In 1918, the British also worked with the Armenians in Baku when they went and occupied Baku oh, for a short the, time.
0: That was the so-called Dunsta Force mission. Exactly,
1: exactly. So uh, the Armenians were, were on everybody's radar. In, in a fairly significant way, actually, in particular in the US. Um, but Realpolitik intervened, uh, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word. And in the end, other than food aid, nothing long-term, of long-term significance was done. And what happened to the Armenians was, yeah, I mean, you can learn a bit about it in the Caucasus
0: episode that we that we put up in October, which uh, uses the the footage that we show, for example, from Turkish troops uh, and from Armenian troops, and some of the city shots and landscape shots are from Armenia, from the American mission that went there right. to briefly to, you know, evaluate the situation uh, a bit, and you know, hu- humanitarian aid was also involved, like the American Red Cross certainly played a big role in everywhere from the Balkans to yeah. the Caucasus at that time. Russia as
1: well for some time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, in a nutshell, uh, yes, the Armenian
1: situation had an influence. It was important, but it didn't result in uh, long-term allied or American involvement. And I suppose in the end, it didn't change the result for uh, the people of Armenian origin who ended up Primarily in uh, the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic starting in
0: 1920. Yep. All right. Um, backing up a bit from history. Perish since, the thought. Since there's the, uh, you know, we are also a production company and our where we publish our videos is on YouTube. And oh, God. Over the summer, uh, all of you and a lot of you um, saw that we have problems with YouTube's demonetization policy policies which is like a whole weird issue which boils down to YouTube has problems determining who they want to give their who they want to give access uh to their advertising uh ecosystem which is Google AdSense you know which displays ads Uh, You see in front of the video in the middle of the video sometimes or like also these banner ads, you know, which, you know Not everybody likes these kinds of ads, but they generate revenue for people who have YouTube channels for creators like us Unless YouTube deems a video or your entire channel advertising not advertising friendly In that case you get some revenue from people who subscribe to YouTube premium, but you don't get any of the add revenue from people who do pre-rolls. Over the summer, we found out that over 270, uh, that's my last count, over 270 of our videos have been demonetized. And that was a bit of an unfortunate situation, to put it mildly. Because a lot of these videos that are included in this list are very, like, our top videos, top performers of our videos, very popular things like our first episode, which gets watched a lot because people share the playlist of our week-by-week real-time coverage, and that's the first video they see, so naturally it gets a lot of clicks. Doesn't generate ad revenue for us. I mean a bit, but not much. And we were able through our contacts at YouTube to establish why that is. The fact is that in our old intro that we used, which is like this the quick uh, six, seven second thing where we show the logo and some footage which, and, and play music over it, which is like the kind of like, uh, you're not watching an episode of The Great War, you know, like every series has an intro. Um, you can see in one of the s- historic uh, film scenes that we used in that intro, you can see dead bodies. Imagine. In a from war. A war. From a war, yeah. It's very, um, you know, very much... Guaranteed that that will happen, and also it's important to say that in two thousand fourteen, when we uploaded these episodes, there were no guidelines that forbid this kind of thing. Now, because of the whole advertising situation, and also because there was a very particular case with a popular YouTuber uh, involving a dead body—a body in the woods. Let's uh, say. Let's uh, let's leave it at that. Um, you know, you can look it up. Uh, the YouTube now has, as I found out a zero tolerance policy on showing any kinds of dead bodies and they explicitly told me that they won't make any exceptions for educational content and you know which for me also means that they they I, I think they don't want to go through the hassle of value uh, evaluate what is educational content or not because that's an editorial decision and that's, I think, something that... The
1: algorithm's not smart enough to make that judgment
0: call. Exactly, yet. and if they would put a human uh, in front of that to make that decision, I mean, they have these reviewers, manual reviewers who do that as well. Who these people are or how they're qualified, I don't know. Long story short, they are not going to budge down on that because also of that high-profile case, this is like something that would be a PR nightmare for them to say, okay, we there are certain... Uh, exceptions or something like that, which means for the foreseeable future, these videos will stay demonetized. All the videos that we did that have this old intro, which is over 250 of them, will stay demonetized. Um, they mentioned uh, when I was in contact with them that they are trying to work on an algorithmic uh, uh, solution to this, which I interpret as something like, hey, maybe if it's always the same scene that shows this kind of image our algorithm could detect that and we could blur that out and then reinstate advertising that's like something I kind of think that's the kind of thing I thought that they might mean with that but I'm not sure so the situation
1: is bad so we got to make 270 replacement videos of you and me trying to eat 20 cheeseburgers in three minutes and then chugging four liters of soda yeah with that Would that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that is much more advertising-friendly content and I think we've just decided that the Great War is going to pivot. The Great Food War? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Jokes aside, um, for the foreseeable future, I know it's a bit of a broken record, but your support on Patreon out there means that we can continue producing this show as we can, that we can discuss in our episodes topics that are not advertising-friendly like the political rise of Adolf Hitler, which is very relevant to understanding 20th century history. And it means that we need your continued support and we appreciate it very much. We do. And with that being said, if there's any more news on that topic or any kind of decisions that we make, of course, we are evaluating different kinds of options, what that means for the channel and for our productions in the future. You know, short term, there's not not much to say because we are also very busy with producing The Great War and 16 Days in Berlin. And there's also Christmas holidays coming up. Um, you know, That's how it will be for the foreseeable future. Maybe next year some things will change, but then we will announce them properly. Thank you very much. Thank you all, and uh, I'll see you in the next episode.